when you're faced with your mortality, and the older you get, the more you're faced with your mortality, um, it's, it can be overwhelming, but it's especially overwhelming uh, when someone who is younger is is faced with that, and we're going through that as a church, you know, where we're praying for somebody and uh, and someone's uh, maybe sick, and and one of the things that is fascinating to me when you think of illness and death is that Rob Rob talked about this recently in a message at Snowbird. We're going through First uh, Corinthians 15, which is the passage on the resurrection. It's all about the resurrection, the power of the resurrection, the effects of the resurrection the proofs of the resurrection, eyewitness accounts of the resurrection. And he, he brought up as an illustration, Rob brought as an illustration, a guy, forget the guy's name, but there's a guy right now that's spending several million dollars a year to try to biogenetically reverse the aging process. Several million dollars a year. And he is, I think this guy's in his late 40s, and after, and he, I don't know how he made his wealth, but he sold his company and now he's spending his money to try to live well up into, uh, you know, I, I think he says he wants to live to 150 or something like that. And guy looks like a zombie. He looks terrible because uh, he's taking all this weird radiation stuff and he's eating. Y'all, you got to eat meat. You got, you need to eat meat. You need to eat meat. You need meat for your body, okay? Like, and he's eating green mess, and he's sitting under weird lamps, and he's doing CrossFit. And you know what? It is appointed unto man once to die. That's what it boils down to. And the hope that we have in Jesus is that death for the believer is not final. It's a, it's a doorway. It's a gateway in the story tonight, we begin in the book of Mark to see Jesus' healing ministry start to take off. I mean, really take off. And it gives us a lot of hope. And I hope that when the, the message is over and the evening is over, that we put, we, we're able to put our hope in a future that is under the authority and control of the one who is timeless. The one who is not bound by illness the one who is not affected by viruses or bacterial infections or cancer or HIV or malaria or the flu or COVID or anything else. He's not, he's not bound by that. All of that is under his feet. Any, any, anything that would cause death is under the feet of the one who brings eternal life. That's the hope that we're going to have. A world, a literal, a literal planet a literal cosmos that is under the strain and the weight and the, Paul says in Romans 8, the groaning effects of sin. A creation that seems to be in a decaying crisis is held in the palm of the one who will one day restore it and make all things new and do away with death and do away with suffering and do away with anything that would, would bring fear or anxiety or anxiousness. Mark chapter 1, invite you to, um, to read with me. Um, our text for tonight is just a few verses. Uh, we'll, we'll be reading um, verses 29 through 34. Mark chapter 1, verses 29 through 34. 
is the word of the Lord. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now, the context here is <clears throat> we know from last week that they had been to the synagogue, which they would have done on the Sabbath. They would have gone to worship and James and John are there, Peter and Andrew. We know this from John 1:44 that Peter and, uh, and Andrew and James and John lived in the city of Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was uh, the largest fishing city, sort of when you think of fishing as a trade or an industry. They're on the Sea of Galilee, and Capernaum was the city that was sort of the, the hub of the fishing trade. Fish would have gone out of that. That was a, apparently the Sea of Galilee, super productive fishing uh, industry. And so it would have gone all over that part of the world. Those guys were from another town called Bethsaida. They were from another town, and they had moved there. They had relocated there. At this point, we saw several weeks ago, Jesus has already called these guys to be his disciples. And I think something that is important in studying Peter as a person, historically, there's a lot of tradition surrounding Peter. But what we know to be true is that based on the sort of the context of the way Peter's life, the way he moved around, he was likely a really successful businessman. And something that's fascinating is that in the city of Capernaum, there's, Capernaum's not a city anymore, it's, but apparently you can go there. I don't know if any of y'all have had the chance to travel to Israel. Every pastor that I read this week in a commentary or I listened to a couple sermons on this text all said, when I was in Israel, and I was like, man, It'd be awesome to stand up and say, I was in Capernaum and I went to Peter's house. I can't say that, but a bunch of dudes did and I read what they had to say. Here's what they would tell us tonight. Um, and, and I think it's, it would be a fascinating trip. It's a bucket list trip for me. Uh, my two bucket list trips are to go to Israel and to kill a really big bull elk somewhere in the, Grand, in the uh, Wind River Range. So anyway, um, uh, but I think uh, what's fascinating is that what is accepted as the, like the house site that Peter lived in, like it's very much accepted by scholars and historians. I ran this by MacArthur and he signed off on it. And it's like, uh, you can go there and there is what is assumed to be the house that Peter lived in. And it's sort of like a complex, multiple apartments, the ruins of this, multiple apartments, a staircase that would have led to a second floor, second level, multiple hearths, which meant there were, there were multiple fireplaces for cooking. It seems like Peter was probably a pretty successful fisherman, probably a pretty successful fisherman. And so uh, these geographic locations, these archaeological sites are really helpful for us in terms of understanding the New Testament or the Old Testament scriptures that we read. And so we know that there's a lot of validity to this place called Capernaum, a lot of validity to the synagogue, a lot of validity to the house that Peter lived in. So they come to Peter's house, these guys, and they're going to have lunch. It's the Sabbath. They're going to come over. They're going to have lunch. I'm sure they're walk, probably walking, talking about the sermon. Talking. Remember we saw last week that when Jesus preached, they said, there's never been authority like this when somebody preached. This was, by the way, for them to recognize the authority of Jesus. There was Last week when Joseph was preaching that, what kept coming out was the authority of Jesus, the authority of Jesus. At this point, you've got... Mark telling us in the first verse, I'm writing this book to show you that Jesus is the Messiah, King, the Savior of the world. 
We've got John the Baptist's preaching ministry pointing people to Jesus, saying this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We've got the Father speaking from heaven at the baptism of Jesus, affirming the identity of who Jesus is. We've got the Holy Spirit descending something like a dove, affirming the identity and the authority of Jesus. We've got Satan in the wilderness confronting Jesus and, and Jesus displaying his authority over Satan in the wilderness. We've got that same, sim, a similar thing last week when Jesus pulls and executes the demon out of this man after that man had sat through who knows. I love the point Joseph made last week. How many times did that guy sat and listen to sermons? He's just showing up at church, demon possessed. Dude's just there. You never know. You know, like you know, and then all of a sudden when Jesus begins to speak with authority, then the demon is exposed. So we've got the authority of Jesus seen in these, these demonic and satanic confrontations. And then you've got the authority of Jesus on display in the way that he provides salvation and the calling of the first disciples. So Jesus's authority has been on display. And what's happening now is they're leaving there. Imagine you're going from church having heard Jesus preach. And I want you to imagine that scene we saw last week. Let's go back there in our imagination where a demon-possessed guy begins to scream in the service. Now, I don't know what we would do in that situation. I do. I've got an idea. There's too many good old boys in here, you know. There's probably, some, uh, there's probably some redneck Jesus lovers in this church hoping some cat stands up and starts doing that mess. I pray it never happens, you know, and I don't even know what that would look like. But I'll tell you very briefly a story that I don't think, I don't think that I have seen or interacted in a way that I knew with many demon-possessed people in my life. I, I don't know. I don't know what that looks like. It can be sensationalized. I think it can also be downplayed. And I th but I think it's real. And there was in this building one time, we were in a worship service with a group of teenagers. And I was preaching on a Tuesday night in a week of summer camp. And I was going through a systematic theology of Satan. We're helping, trying to help students understand who Satan is, where he came from, a lot of misrepresentation, misunderstanding. This was in 2009. So systematic theology is where you go from Genesis to Revelation, you take a subject, and you see all that the Bible has to say about it. Well, there's no way to do that in a 30-minute sermon, but we, we kind of did a high-level overview. There was a young lady in the crowd who, had, this was the first full day of camp. So this was on Tuesday. They had come into town on Monday. A bunch of people in this room right now were here that night. Raise your hand if you were here that night. There's probably a dozen, maybe 20 people. This young lady was living in South Mississippi, and she was, she was, I believe, under severe demonic oppression and influence. And she had gone to a very Pentecostal holiness-type revival to have what she thought was an exorcism performed. And it, and it didn't help. In fact, she was kind of laid out and passed out and slain in the spirit or whatever, whatever had happened. I don't remember, but she had gone unconscious, woke up, felt a little bit free from this. Um, and then it came back with a, with, with a vengeance. She would wake up in the middle of the night and some, she's 16 years old, and she would be far from her house in some weird location and had cut herself. She had scars all over her body. She was being 
completely manipulated and bullied by some what what I think was a demonic um, being or force. And so she goes, I don't remember how it happened, but she got online, she saw Snowbird Outfitters and, and, and she said, I almost heard a voice say, if you'll go there, these people will help you. So she starts researching, finds a church from South Mississippi that's going to come to Snowbird, to camp. She... Uh, Michaela Howell's home, home church, I believe, was the church that she came with. She came here. Nobody knows. And on the first night, I preached that sermon. I get done. I walk off stage. The band starts playing. She's, in, she's somewhere in the building, and she begins to scream and yell and jump and scream. And it turns into a huge ordeal where Zach stops the, the, the song service, prays, and has everyone leave the building. And we begin to address this girl. And I could tell the details another time, but in the end, what happened was that she confessed with her mouth, Jesus is Lord. The Bible says in Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And I remember, I just remember feeling an urgency where somewhere right down here, she was at the time biting me. I wa- I, and I saw her literally rob and Zach and myself for sure witnessed this, that she took a grown man by the throat and slammed him. His shoulder blades were the first thing to hit right here on the floor. I've never seen anything like it. I'm going to tell this one story. I ain't never talked like this before, and I'm going to tell this one story, and then we ain't going to talk about it no more. Okay, y'all with me, though? All right? Ain't nobody's head's going to spin around or nothing like that. This just happened, and uh, y'all saw 18 eyewitnesses probably in here. And I walked out here, and, and there was some serious something going on in her mind. And, in her, and, and I remember saying to her, and her name was Morgan, and I remember saying to her, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, I remember asking her, do you want to be delivered from this? And, and, and she, she whispered, Jesus is Lord, in this choked voice. And she, it began, to, whatever was going on began to loosen. And she said, Jesus, I said, yell it. She said, Jesus is Lord. I said, yell it. And she began to yell, Jesus is Lord, Jesus is Lord. Rob's back here quoting Revelation 19. I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes, makes war. And it was like this thing went from like a reformed covenant Baptist kind of thing to like straight charismaniac. We were go- it was wild, man. It was like I never experienced anything like it. And it was like. And so, so this little girl was set free, set free. And here's what I want you to understand. By her confession that Jesus is Lord, not by an exorcism at the hand of some super holy guy who did a thing. Y'all tracking with me? Wasn't she, conf- salvation is in the confession of the Lordship of Christ and putting our faith in the finished work of what he did at Calvary. Okay. But when Jesus was in church that Saturday, that Sabbath day, he spoke by his authority. Because he's the one that has the authority to free people from addiction. You've had a loved one or a friend or somebody, you wanted to help them so bad and you can't help them. It's because you can't help them. Jesus alone has the authority to set people free from their addiction. 
You've watched someone make choice after choice and go down a path that's destructive and you want to bring them back. Maybe it's a son or a daughter or a brother or sister or a loved one and, you're, and it's killing you and you, and you pray and you cry out to God and you don't know what to do. It's because you cannot do anything. A good friend of mine I was talking today, but I'm getting, I don't know about y'all, I'm getting texts. Or how close are the fires to you guys? Y'all, I'm playing that sucker up. I'm, I'm saying, I don't know, send us some clothes. We're going to need gas, credit card, like, like cards for food and fuel. We need like emergency relief. No, I'm just messing with you. We're going to be fine. You know, like, but I, I was talking to a guy today that lives in Virginia, and he said, how are you guys? What can I do? And I just said, pray. That's all you can do. There's nothing you can do but pray. You can't, this 70-year-old 70, 70 man can't come here and do anything about this fire, right? There's nothing he can do, but he can pray. And we all have been in that situation where there's nothing you can do, but you can pray. You can go to the one who has the ability to bind Satan, to control demons, to loose and set free the prisoner and the one that is in bondage to sin or addiction or anxiety or depression. Jesus is the one who came to save people from those things. But you know what else he came to save people from? Their unbelief. Your loved one that won't confess Jesus as Lord, only Jesus can save them from that unbelief. You can't talk them into salvation. You can't convince them. Jesus has to do that. What was that conversation like? Walking, it's about a one minute walk from the synagogue to Peter's house. But I bet you that was a slow walk and they probably ended up standing around like, I'm picture, I know what we would have done, most of us. We had been reenacting it. You know, like, and then this happened, and then, and then, and Jesus, you, you remember that one part you was preaching? It was like you wrote the book. <laughs> so they go into the house, and when they get there, they get to the house, and it, and it says that Peter's mother-in-law is in a bad way. Now, Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately, there's that word that Mark uses a lot, immediately, they told him about her, and he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. So, he, so Jesus now exerts his authority. This is a new one. He exerts his authority over physical illness. This is a time where a virus or a fever or a bacterial infection would kill somebody where we can go get Tylenol. You got a fever, you can fight that fever. We've got, we live in, a, I mean, up until... Fairly recently in human history, it was common for people to die from something as simple as a cold that turns into pneumonia, that turns into a fever that takes somebody's life. This is, I don't know what was going on, but she's sick and she's there and she's desperate and she's got this fever. And I think, I, I think there's, there's this authoritative moment where Jesus is showing that he has power and authority over even physical illness. Now, I want to I point out some things right here, and particularly for those of you who are note takers, I think this might be helpful, that when it comes to healing, like, like the healing ministry of Jesus, I want to point out some, some things that I think will be helpful. Uh, the first one is this. Oftentimes in the modern context, like, like there's, a, you know, there's a whole movement of like faith healers. 
which has always just dumbfounded me how people fall for that because I'm like, if you were really a faith healer, why don't you go to Erlanger Children's Hospital and walk those halls healing kids from the diseases that are destroying their families? Y'all know how to recognize a false prophet or a faith healer. As a church, we've addressed this in the past. But people fall for it. And I want to say that Jesus addresses physical illness differently in one sense than he addresses demons. And you'll see a lot of people merge that in contemporary language. They'll say something like, you know, I've got, I've got this illness. I feel like it needs to be rebuked as if it was demonic or Satan is attacking me. And the reality is sickness, illness, fever, virus, cancer, you name it, is the result of living in a broken and fallen world that is under literally the effects of sin and decay. The moment you're born into this world, you're dying, you know? And so it's not like when a person has illness, you know, there's a guy, they come to, they, they come to Jesus, there's this blind guy, and, and they say, who sinned, him or his mom? And Jesus is like, no, 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 this, that's not how this works. He's not blind because someone sinned. He's blind so that I might be glorified in restoring his sight and prove and declare that I am who I say I am. That's the point of this whole message tonight. Jesus is validating what will be his own claims of Messiahship. That's the main point. Why is Jesus doing what he's doing? To validate his claim as the Savior, the Messiah King of the world. And so I think it's important to recognize that Jesus doesn't rebuke the illness the same way he rebukes demons. He doesn't say, "Get the, the demon of the fever has got to leave her. He doesn't do that. He just addresses the illness. But I want you to consider for just a minute um, how Jesus dealt with sickness and disease and healing. First, Jesus in this particular instance, and let me, let me, let me, let's, let's look at how he deals with this healing he spoke a word, and it seems that he touched this lady, and then she's made well. So the authority of his word or the authority of his touch. The authority of his word, the authority of his touch. But then, if, you keep, if, if we keep going in the text, after he heals her, it says that she prepared a meal for them. Then the fever left her, and she prepared a meal for them. That brings me to the next two observations about how Jesus healed. The next one is that he healed instantly. So he healed with a word and a touch. He healed instantly. And then, not only instantly, but he healed completely. It wasn't, you, ever, you ever get sick? We use this word in my house. Like, you know when you've been sick for two or three days, and then that day where you think like, okay, I think I'm over this, but you feel puny anybody else use that word okay all right yeah that's where you're like I'm better but I'm not really better the effects you know I feel weak I feel this lady gets up and begins to prepare a meal on a wood fire for a big group of people he heals her instantly he, he heals her completely now what happens is verse 32 that evening after sunset Many sick and demon-possessed people were brought to Jesus. Why would they wait till sunset? Well, because this is, the, uh, this is the Sabbath. You remember, this is the Sabbath day. And so on the Sabbath day, they would have not been free to move about until sunset. 
So sunset comes, and that Jesus and the, and the, and the folks have had a meal, and they've enjoyed, they enjoyed worship, and they've sat around together and fellowship, and now people begin to show up at the house. That evening at sundown, they brought him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So let's just, let's just uh, unpack this. Let's finish this. So the next thing that uh, we would consider about the way Jesus deals with healing is that as all of these people began to come and show up, that Jesus didn't turn anyone away. He healed everyone who showed up. So everybody that came, Jesus healed them. And you'll see this oftentimes in the ministry of Jesus where he'll stay late into the night dealing with people, ministering to people, helping people. The next thing that we notice about the way Jesus heals is that it didn't matter the condition that people were in. Now, we're not given a lot of detail about what conditions might have showed up here, but we know that studying the entirety of the four Gospels, Jesus healed people who couldn't walk. He healed people who had broken and and maimed limbs. He healed people. I, I believe he took people who were missing limbs or digits or eyeballs or body parts and restored them. And it wasn't just the physical, external, exterior body that Jesus healed. He healed internal diseases, cerebral palsy. Uh, I believe he healed diseases that crippled and disabled people. He made lame people to walk. Jesus, in fact, raised dead people back to life. And he did so by his own authority. Jesus healed completely. And it didn't matter the condition that observation's very important. Jesus healed people who had no faith. He healed people who had little faith, and he healed people who had great faith. Who were the people who had no faith that Jesus healed? Uh, we could start with the dead people he raised. Now, if that's a parallel of salvation. Ephesians chapter 2, when you were dead in your trespasses and sin, we were raised to life the power of Jesus' salvation for us. He healed people with little faith, little faith. The man who said, I help my unbelief of his son. Maybe my favorite healing is the woman who had the issue of blood and she fought through the crowd and touched the hem of his garment. I believe she had great faith. The point is this. Now listen closely, Red Oak. The faith of the one being healed was never an indicator of what Jesus was going to do when it came to healing people physically. That means you cannot have or create enough faith to get Jesus to heal you or somebody else. That's what's contrary to the false teaching of faith healers. Jesus healed so that he might display and validate that he was who he said he was. How's he going to raise people to eternal life if he can't deal with a fever or an illness or lameness or palsy? So I think that's an important thing to recognize. Some of them had no faith. Some of them had great faith. Their faith never determined if they were healed or not. That wasn't the determining fact. It may have motivated them. Certainly the lady that that worked through the crowd to touch the hem of his garment, she was motivated by her faith, but it was the power of Jesus that healed her. It was not the power of her faith that healed her. That's an important distinctive. 
And last, I think, in terms of understanding the healing power of Jesus, the purpose of Jesus' healing work was not for social work. It was not for health care. It wasn't uh, for, for, for anything other than to affirm that he was the true Messiah and that he had power over diseases and demons and over the physical world and the spiritual world. Let's consider then, lastly, how he dealt with demons in the story. Jesus proved that he was who he said he was. He rescued the lost from their sin. He conquered Satan and his demons. He showed ultimately that he had the power to raise his own glorified body and ascend to his rightful position in heaven. I think it's, uh, it's important maybe worth noting or thinking about the fact that even the scripture teaches that even in Jesus' death, he proclaimed and declared victory over the demonic realm. And it's important for us to understand we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but with principalities and powers, Ephesians chapter 6. But Jesus doesn't wrestle with Satan. Oh, no, he's got his foot on his throat 24-7. He is Satan's God. And we live in a fallen world, and for a season, there is an effect, and there is an impact, and there is a work in the demonic and spiritual realm, but that sucker's on a, maybe I shouldn't say it that way, but he's on a leash controlled by the one who holds his eternity the same way he holds your eternity. You see, the Bible tells us that Satan is going to be chained and bound and cast into utter and outer and eternal darkness where he will never, never mess with anybody again. Now, we need to be aware of who he is and what he is, but we need to be most aware of who Christ is and what he is. Run to the one who heals the leper and makes the lame to walk and sets the captive spirit free. His name is Jesus. He is your Lord. He is the answer to all of your problems. He's the one who will set you free from your addiction, from your anxiety, from your fear, from the dread of that wayward son or daughter. He's the one who gives you hope for your future. See, those people showed up that night. Jesus healed every one of them. He healed them with a word or a touch. He healed them completely. He healed them instantly. He didn't heal any of them progressively. None of them went like, none of them left, you know, like, that bum knee is like, I feel like I got a little more, I put a little more weight on it. Uh, wait till tomorrow, it's going to be even better. Give it about seven days, you'll be, you'll be, no, it was like instant. People left and they could walk. People left, they could talk, they could see. But there's something interesting that happens, and it's in verse 34. This is the, the, the very last thought I want to give you. Is this in verse 34. It's like, why, why does he say he didn't allow them to speak? You'll see this where he'll, he'll tell people, don't go tell people who I am. And I think in the little uh, expository preaching commentary, Danny Aiken um, did the one that goes with Mark. And I appreciate he pointed out, it was like a list of like nine things. You could go look at that and read that. But, but sort of the main idea was faith in Jesus needs to be faith in who he is as much as in what he's done. Now, for the believer, those two things come together. What he's done is he's gone to Calvary's cross and he's died in our place. So the finished work of Jesus we trust in. But in that moment, 
the danger was that people, we see it, and remember in John chapter 6 where Jesus feeds the multitude and the next day they show up and he knows the intent of their heart and mind and he says, you're only here because you want more food. You're not here because you want me. You're not here to surrender to my lordship. You're not here to call on me as Lord. You're not here to worship me or to repent before me or to turn from your sin for salvation. You're here because you want fish and bread. That's why. We were doing, some time ago, we were doing a uh, thing over at the uh, Snowbirds North Campus. Y'all remember we did this like clothing giveaway? Oh, it was awesome, man, watching people show up. But I remember this one minivan. My girl rolled out of here with enough stuff to start her own thrift store, went home, dumped it, came back, filled that little minivan up again. We didn't care. We're giving it away. You can have it. You can have it. Take what you. She was like, I'll take what I can get. You know, I, I bet her eBay site flooded that week. She was selling some church thrift store stuff, you know. I don't care. It doesn't matter. We're just giving it away. It's just free. A lot of people will show up for what they can get based on what they think they need or want. You got to come to Jesus naked, undone, empty of yourself, recognizing your need, hopeless, helpless, nowhere to go, rock bottom, then you fix your eyes on Jesus and he's the answer. That's the hope. You don't show up for the stuff. You show up for the Savior. You don't show up for what he might offer you in this life. You show up for what he offers you in resurrection life. Jesus in this story has validated who he is. And he'll continue, continue to do so throughout this, the, the book. I'll close with one story. There's a young man, when I first got into ministry, his name was Andrew Robarge. All the Snowbird staff have heard this story before. The first person I ever counseled as a Christian. And I was at a worship service on, a, on a, the last night of a camp, a summer camp. Little and I were working at this summer camp. We'd been married maybe a year or two. I was excited about Jesus. I'd been reading my Bible and journaling and things like, man, I'm like, I want to tell somebody. And I started, we started going out, we'd tell people about Jesus. I'd love to go back and hear recordings of that, you know, like just telling people on the street. I was pulling, I'm freaking these two girls out. We're driving down the road. I slam on brakes. There's two girls walking. I jump out. Today, you would get pepper sprayed if you did this. And I walked up to them and I'm like, and I'm a 24 three-year-old version of me y'all that was a crazy dude and I walk up and them girls I remember their eyes got big and I was like I want to tell y'all about Jesus you know and and but I remember I wanted I wanted so bad to lead somebody to faith in Jesus and I remember going and working at the student ministry event and I was going to be one of the counselors and the guy said now at the end kids are going to come out for counseling and you just be ready to everybody just be and it was a bunch of us 20 of us maybe and you're going to have opportunity to take a young man or young woman and answer their questions and walk them through the plan of salvation and and I remember I had thought like and the guy was like maybe they're dealing with personal sin maybe they're dealing with maybe they don't have a relationship with God and he kind of coached us on what to say and I remember the kid comes, like, and, and when, the, when the moment of truth came, and I'm one of the counselors, and I remember I just kept getting behind other counselors as kids were coming forward <laughs> until I'm all the way at the end. I mean, I'm hiding behind five and a half foot tall people, and I'm like, 
you know. And I finally get to the end, and this little 12-year-old guy, he comes walking down, and he walks, and he's just kind of, and it's just me and a kid looking around like they said there'd be counselors here. I just see this redneck hillbilly guy over here. I think he's out of place, you know. Anyway, I go over to him, and we go outside. We sit down, and I said, what's your name, buddy? He said, Andrew. He's he's snubbing. (laughs) He's crying, you know. He's real emotional. Andrew, and I said, Oh, man, it's a powerful sermon, wasn't it? He's like, he's just, he can't talk. And I was like, you know, what, man, you, what you been doing? You do any drugs? You smoke weed? You look at pornography? What's up, man? You need Jesus to set you free, you know? And he's like, and then he starts to, you know, through whimpers, tell me that his grandmother has a terminal illness. And I remember just thinking, I'm so stupid, but I also don't know what I'm supposed to say. They didn't tell us about this one. They didn't give us this scenario, you know. And I remember just, and the, oh, the worst thing. I said, don't worry, buddy. How old are you, 12, 12? It's okay. When, my, when I was 12, we found out my grandmother had breast cancer, and she died, and everything worked out just fine for my family. Like, <laughs> Worst, like literally worst counseling session of the year. And I remember there was this point where I said, and I just, you know, kind of like, Lord, what do I do? Almost like I'm turning over here to talk to the Lord. He's just sitting here crying. And I said, look, buddy, I don't know what to tell you, but I know this. Jesus has power over life and death. And, and, and he has a future plan for your grandmother if she has faith. And she had faith. He told me she was a believer. And it was like she had trusted the Lord as a young girl and had been a godly woman. And I said, here's the hope that whatever happens, one day we will all be together with Jesus. And I learned such a valuable lesson that day. Like, man, you don't, I don't have the answers for people's problems, but Jesus does. He has the answers for doubt and fear and lostness and arrogance and materialism and he can set people free from the look look from the demonic forces of false religions he can set people free and he may not heal physically in this life because everybody he healed in that story died a physical death at some point but we are promised that that's just a doorway to eternal life with him that's the hope that we have let's pray lord thank you that you have the authority over life and death and hell and the grave thank you that you hold the keys to those things thank you that you alone can save us you alone can bring healing to broken bodies and that sometimes you do choose to heal that's why we pray that's why last night we prayed for hack's granddad and celebrated today when we got a report that he was doing better because we do ask you for healing lord in this story you heal this woman and, and you heal these people and you, and, you, and you declare yourself to be who you say that you are by your actions. But Lord, just as you told them, hey, don't, don't, don't spread the word right now. My work is not finished. I'm not just here to do tricks. I'm not just here to be a magician. I'm not just here to give out stuff. I'm going to declare victory over death in my own death on a rugged cross, and you did that, Lord. And then you said, now go. 
All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, and I now commission and call you to go proclaim that I am Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the, the Holy One of God that John preached about, that the prophets wrote about, that the disciples died for. God, help us to live with a faith that is built on and resting on your authority and yet your kindness and your gentleness to us. Help us to have faith for our loved ones that you'll save them, heal them, change them, and to put our trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.